Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Hayward. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. As it's three years since we launched FuturePod, we thought it would be interesting to check in with our previous guests and see how their work and their thinking may have changed since we last spoke to them. And so we created a FuturePod series called The Re-Interviews. Today, we are re-interviewing Rene Rohrbeck. We originally interviewed Rene in podcast 24. It was called Expanding Corporate Foresight. And that is one of the most widely listened podcasts that we've had in three years. Um, People are very interested in the notion of corporate foresight. So it'll be of great interest for me and I'm assuming listeners, to hear where Rene's thinking is now, given the past couple of years that of disruption that we've been through. So welcome back to FuturePod, Rene. It's lovely to be here, Peter. So how's the last couple of years been? Now, I think when we spoke to you last time, you were in the process of leaving Denmark and your university at Aarhus. So maybe you just want to talk about where you've, where you've moved to and what you're doing. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Since now two and a half years in the north of France with the Adec Business School, which is one of the leading business schools in in Europe. And uh, I'm running a chair here, which is called Foresight Innovation and Transformation. Right up your alley, I would say. <laughs> so the idea was uh, really to create a center which can um, help firms understand how to create fundamental change. And um, therefore, picking up on my earlier work on focused sort of more F. Now we have the entire FIT uh, mission with us. So uh, also thinking about how this uh, transformation then can actually happen, what motivates that transformation, what is also the barriers of transformation. And um, all this, of course, in a setting where um, not only the society at large, but also the business schools they invent or reinvent their role also in driving a sustainable transition. So that's something which underlies all our work and thinking here. Certainly now got a big sandpit to play in, haven't you? Right. For us, we um, have a number of different formats through which we engage with the business community. But right now, you don't need to motivate any business anymore to start thinking of what is a sustainable future. What is harder is to actually you know, get some activities which are meaningful out of it. And yeah. uh, this is maybe also something we'll be touching throughout our discussion today. What is the status of the corporate foresight maturity model that you started working on, what, almost 15 years ago? Originally, um, it was a model which was built uh, out of the wish to, to connect, often very um, local, very unconnected type of approaches, projects, and so on, which firms do to to look into the future and plan for their strategy. It started to to have two layers, the the layer of more the actions, which we call the three Ps, which is perceiving, prospecting, and probing. So this process, which a firm goes through when it is preparing for doing something about future threats and opportunities. And a capability layer below, which is something which we're even more interested because even for us as humans, when we build a capability, this is something we can then deploy for many different goals we have, for many different 
benefits we'd get out of it. And uh, this is something which um, we have then also driven through a, a lot of benchmarking work, looking deeper into what is it exactly firms which are responsive, which are doing right. And what is the kind of processes they have in place? What are the routines for scanning the horizon? How does that connect then to decision making? How do they create also emotional involvement across the organization, et cetera, et cetera. So we've been continuing our work and using that model for benchmarking. And what we want to take it towards is to make an openly accessible index out of it. And it's still the same notion which we had when we started this work, that we need to give organizations a tool to counterbalance their focus on the here and now and uh, i think for us this is uh, even as human beings something very important to get this balance between the here and now and the future and maybe the future of my children and the ones who come after me but this is something which we learned from our research, which doesn't come natural to organizations, whether they're non-profit or for-profit. And this is something we want to do uh, something about. And such index, which you can track across different industries, across countries, is something which we want to, to contribute. I mean, you, in our conversations quite a while ago, you introduced this notion of maturity. And so the question I have to ask you is, are are organizations getting more mature in the ability to do this? We, we have seen actually a, um, a, a huge boost coming from the COVID situation. I think uh, this was a wake-up call across the board, which earlier we witnessed more industry by industry. There's a digital transformation which is hitting almost all industries and where industries are starting to, to transform and then companies to realize that they are not adapted anymore to what's happening around them. Um, the COVID crisis amplified this in a very meaningful way so that practically you know, all firms we talk to, then it's a bit biased because you know, firms also come towards us to discuss these questions, but they are not only aware, but they often have already teams working on horizon scanning, teams working on scenarios, teams looking for a broader notion of risk assessment in the mid and long term. The other day I was talking to a really nice lady who is, whose job title is the uh, assurance of the long-term role of that company. Yeah, wow. that's right. That's right. So this this notion of uh, going beyond resilience to understand your place in uh, a future world, your place in the system and your impact on the system is something which is clearly emerging in a much more stronger way than we have witnessed in, in the past decades. Is there something, there's a, probably not a simple answer to this one, but it, have you got a sense about where the developmental opportunity or what things are still inhibiting the development of real corporate maturity in this space? So there's probably a couple of points which come to my mind straight away. The first is still this notion that efficiency needs to rule in large organizations. For many firms, this is something which allows you to 
you know, cut short also any kind of reflection exercise that you say, well, this is going too far. This is not us. Um, this is something which takes out the attention from, from more important things, whatever those important things then are. So this notion of we need to be efficient also means that you're not organizing your people in a way that you have resilience afterwards. I, I keep reminding also the, the leaders we work with that you know, the most robust society in nature is ant colonies. And the main reason for that is that 30% of ants, they are tasked with not going after the known sources of food, but running around randomly looking for new sources of food. Now, there's a couple of companies who might spend some 5%, maybe some 7%. Some leading companies are also spending up to 15% of their revenues on R&D. Maybe also have a strong R, so undirected research to gather new technological knowledge or other kinds of knowledge in order to then build the future of their company on the basis of that. But this is still very rare. So... That's certainly the first point which one needs to ensure that there's a balance between the, the current set of products and services you're, you're offering and, and the new ones. But that's an old topic. Now, the second thing which I'm in increasingly seeing is the attention span. And that's more of a societal challenge. The attention span you can put on dealing with challenges which you can set on new projects is more and more difficult to protect and this of course makes it very hard to then keep the attention not even in the planning process is already hard to keep that attention but then to keep the attention on executing then on those insights building new parts of your business, um, building you know, larger changes in the way you produce your products or even the kind of products you have. And uh, we have big tr transformations which we need ahead of us. And for that, we, we do need this attention. So this is something which I often invite also leaders to reflect on. How much attention do they have on creating change? how much in terms of time per week, time in a month, time in a year. This is something which is important to, to reflect on, I think. I've always thought that it'd be interesting, and I've, I don't know whether you've seen this in your research, but there are corporate organizations that have a very close connection to the market and in terms of the quarterly reporting and that kind of thing. And then you have what are often privately owned organizations that don't have to respond to the market as readily uh, and I've always wondered whether privately held firms that are somewhat independent of the pressures of the market can they in fact be more mature because they can take longer to do things and think about things and that kind of thing yes um, this is something which comes out actually very strongly also empirically from even 15 years back when we were starting this type of research in our research program, we're seeing a lot more uh, sort of readiness to engage with the midterm in companies which are family-owned, companies which are owned by foundations. And sometimes this comes also then 
in, in almost hidden or indirect ways. So many companies which have still maybe not 100%, but a strong base of family ownership, they would still do the quarterly reports because they are a public company and they're traded and they need to do them. And in many of the conversations we have then with leaders of, of firms which have some family heritage or ownership, they would say, yes, managing the company as a public company, yet there is this dinner invitations where I need to say something about where do I take this organization? What has this organization for an impact on society that can be sometimes a very local society of saying, how are our workers doing? How are the families of our workers doing? What kind of schools do they go to? So a very local responsibility, which they feel. But we also been privileged to do some work with very old and, and very large uh, chemical companies, which often in many ways in a crossroads situation where they say we have been actually financially very successful in the past decades because we feed basically our products into growing economies around the world and we are leaders, we have patented technologies, we're doing very well. Uh, at the same time, we, we are also profiting from the throwing away culture which we helped create and they often have this inner dialogue, which is represented by the younger employees and the older employees. And I often find myself now mentally on the side of the latter, <laughs> that you're starting to say, well, yeah, of course, we, we need to go further and higher and and uh, we, we need to do more to for our top line and for our bottom line. And it comes natural while the younger generation say, well, why should that be natural? Uh, why can that be detached from our responsibility towards what is being done with our products? And there's a tremendous amount of work for foresighters and futurists to get into this discussion and help canalize this or help making this a productive one. So... One of the things you have been doing is, I think you call the future of projects. And you want to maybe just talk about maybe some of those projects, but also talk about what is it you're trying to achieve with those? So this is something which in different names and forms I've been doing now also for over 10 years, but I really reinvented them to a certain extent when I joined the EdEc Business School, also because... We are here in a business school which um, has the heritage of engaging a lot with its nearshore partners in the industry, but also internationally. And students, they are also in this situation where, on the one hand, they getting still a traditional business school education to make them effective managers. And then they are also looking for this amplified role as change agents, understanding how they can be part of the sustainability transformation which is going on around them. And we were looking for ways to bring these two populations together. So the firms wondering about their future, the young people who want to be part of that future. In futurist terms, we, 
we often talk about this as, as decolonizing the future. So it's not the old people making the future for the young, but that, that the young can create their own future. And uh, we've been fine-tuning this type of approach now for some time. And um, the basic logic of this is that we take um, the firms first through a training on foresight. We then take them through a foresight project with more of a classical type, you would imagine, where we work on horizon scanning, where we work on scenarios, where we work, and that's often for the firms very important, with the emerging companies, so with startups, mid-cat companies, which are doing something different in their industries. And we're disrupting with that first phase of the project the thoughts about what can be the future of their organization and the industry, which uh, is their context. And after this disruption, we, we bring in the young people. And um, I've got the privilege of teaching a course which is called Foresight and Strategic Design. And um, I'm teaching this actually in two of our programs. So there's some 350 students which I can get involved into this kind of future of project. And the students come in with fresh eyes on everything. So without the rucksack of the rules which you expect an industry to work by and which cannot be altered. And uh, the two recent ones which we did was uh, the future of air travel in the middle of the COVID crisis. And uh, this year we, we do on the future of buildings within a housing crisis. So we're also picking deliberately um, industries where there's a particular pressure on, where there's a particular moment in time where people reflect, where people ask questions. And it's a wonderful meeting and melting pots for ideas, for generations. And it can still enhance. I'm also taking inspiration for lots of, of other such type of, uh, of projects. I'm taking a lot of inspiration from the UNESCO and Real Miller's work with this future laboratories, which is really about this awakening this instinct of reflecting, this instinct of, of thinking outside the box. And so there's amazing insights, stories, and also action coming out of, of those future of projects. Wow. I wonder, given my interest is always the moral basis of the actions we take, does the actual moral basis, the moral understanding, the conditions of who is impacted by the future of the industry come up in these generational conversations? Yes, this is one of our big missions in this, that we want to create this systemic understanding. We want to make the students also aware i mean one one needs also to be fair sort of towards managers in the sense that managers they are not and they're, they're not uh, waking up and saying i'm going to make life easy for me i'm trying to take straightforward decisions even if it appears sometimes from outside but the challenge is of course that organizations are complex within their surrounded by a complex environment and firms need to take decisions to move and, and to be functional. So, of course, we, we have a big role also in making sure that our students are able to take decisions. And I'm catching myself sometimes as a futurist that I'm looking at a challenge which I'm facing and I'm enjoying myself so much on reflecting on it. 
that that can take some time that some action comes out of this. We, of course, um, do this type of, of projects to bring options on the table. And what is fantastic about this is that we are able to um, keep attention on this reflection for nine months. That's typically the way we, we run these projects. So the firms, they're starting through a series of workshops to work on the future among themselves. We also bring firms from different perspectives into it. And what amazed me, for instance, this year in the future of buildings, the building industry is very fragmented. So there's the ones who would make initial design, the the architects and the building engineers, they need to work out how to, how on how on earth they're able to, to build this. Then there's the retail com- or the, the real estate companies, which are then getting the money, finding the customers, uh, bringing the financing together, who are then contracting the construction company. After construction, the real estate companies, they often sell very fast uh, the projects off. So then they stop caring about the long-term life of a building. So there's all kinds of challenges, structural challenges, for bringing together the actors in the industry to take a sustainable view on the industry. And what doesn't help is that they also don't talk with each other. So we quite deliberately want to create this forum. And what amazed me was when we were three months into the project, and this was 2020, so you can imagine the workshops, which otherwise are a great place to to gather and to exchange thoughts to warm up with each other to build trust well they were online so we do our best uh, to to uh, get uh, discussions going and we do uh, think a fair job but it's not the same so the first time we meet actually is in summer 2020 in berlin for what we call a startup trip so we invite startups we scout as being particularly advanced in the field and we're looking at companies which for many reasons, in areas where they pollute a lot, many of of our listeners might know that the building industry is, depending on the country, responsible between 35 and 40% of CO2 emissions. However, this is often something which is not directly attached to, to one organization. It has also something to do with heating the building and, and, and so on. And across the board... All these organizations, they look at me at the start of these two days, which we spent together, and say, we're really here because we are all looking for making our industry more sustainable. And that was for me, uh, okay, I was expecting that this will be part of the discussion. There's plenty of other topics. There's shortage of, of labor, of talent. There is digitalization coming in. There's new types of players coming in. So the established companies also need to defend themselves. But this was across the board, the the biggest challenge or the most important challenge they actually wanted to work on, even though it's probably not the biggest in terms of the impact on their organizations just yet. And this gives me a lot of hope. And then, of course, what is interesting is for... The different actors in the industry, many of them, they're profiting, of course, from the boom in house prices, for instance. And we bring them together with the group of people which suffers the most, which are, you know, our students, which are particularly in our Paris campus or so. You can imagine how big apartments can get 
when you are a student budget and you're living in Paris and in what kind of conditions you're then joining maybe online courses in, in these COVID times, you, you start creating very powerful reflection opportunities, let's say, for the actors of the industry. And what was interesting for me to see the, the second part of this Future Off project is then really about creating concepts for the future. And those concepts, they are then fueled by the horizon scan. They are fueled by the scenarios which we developed, also developed in videos. Um, which you could also share with the listeners uh, with a little link, which gets then further amplified sort of with the startups we see in the space. And we had very inspirational startups working on circularity of building materials, for instance, among others. And then the students come in and they start to, to build actually as a teamwork these solutions, ideas, inspirational use cases, etc. And what was amazing for me to see there was that many were also looking for solutions which would fight this loneliness they, they're experiencing right now in COVID crisis. But going beyond that and, and saying, we also need to bring communities back to my living environment. We're seeing that sort of society and, and the different elements of societies, they're drifting apart. We, we need to fight this. And in a sense, this is for me a bit of a time travel because in Denmark, this notion of we need to make huge efforts to keep our society together has been something which um, has driven policies, um, also in buildings, uh, in also how you organize cities for many years by now. But in France, this is still something which is rather new, but where you can see this powerful driving force of the young who bring that in with then all the heart and the energy and the emotions also into the discussion through a series of of pitch videos, which we then also shared uh, widely with our um, partners and where partners are still coming back to me and saying, can we have this video again from these students? Because I want to show that internally at this and that workshop. So it's creating real impact, this, this, this what are the values of the people involved and not just involved in creating the buildings, but also involved in using them and being part of society and so on. So I think this brings, brings moral and 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 these you know emotional elements uh, out very strongly in in the planning later on yeah i'm hearing that when you talk about the difficulty of managing the here and now and the long term and the tension that's between those two things what you're talking about of course is the trade off at what point do we trade the future off for the present and what time and then at what notion do we do we possibly trade off the present in order of a long term and I think what you're saying is by getting people's thinking out of just their own organisational context, at least to the level of the system, even beyond the market or the niche and get it into the community, it doesn't make the problems easier to solve necessarily, but you have different sets of values upon which you can make this kind of future present trade-off happen. Yeah, and I think my... Work is also driven by the notion that it's not just about trade-offs. It's also about finding smarter ways of acknowledging first and then also 
shaping the system which governs then how we do business and then how we consume and how, how we organize ourselves as a society. I think also the, the previous project we did was the future of air travel. And this is particularly on the side of the airlines, an industry which is extremely boxed in. What we don't realize is that many airlines, they're barely profitable. So they have very little extra cash to spend on a different type of future. And what you could also see when the, the crisis hit, and I had the privilege of, of seeing this also from somewhat from within because I had an existing consultancy engaged with a major airline. And then we started also this project, which involved then two airlines, two airports, all four major ones, some think tanks, Yacht Amadeus, which is known maybe through the Amadeus Code, which is a digital player, which helps in, in many ways, not just that industry, but mobility at large um, on with digital tools and digital products. And the entire industry was basically looking at COVID like the mouse is looking at the snake <laughs> at the cat. or the cat with, with big eyes. And the only question which was asked was how long? You know, yeah. How yeah. long will this last until we're back to normal? And from the beginning, you're from an outside perspective, it's of course much easier, but you say, this is an industry which was anyway on on a path. Yeah, it was on its knees and unsustainable uh, then, and now you've become completely unsustainable. You might as well either transform yourself or disappear. That's right. And I still reflect on, on the discussion we had on your terrace when I was starting to say, okay, when do we see you over in, in Europe? And you said, you will never see me over in Europe. Yeah? And by the way, my, my brother has also, uh, was it the 75th birthday in, in the US and I'm not going to visit him because I'm not going to put all these CO2 emissions out yeah. uh, just to take the plane. And I, I had a, a reflection a little bit later when I was sitting in a plane going back from Hong Kong to uh, to Frankfurt, I think it was. And uh, we had to wait. So the German pilot is giving us a little bit of information because he enjoys this and he's anyway bored. So he says, oh, by the way, we're almost ready to go and we fueled up and it's uh, 220,000 liters of kerosene and, oh, and then we're going to take off. And, and we are like 400 people and we're going in the next 10 hours going to burn 220,000 liters of kerosene. And then, of course, you do the maths and, and you say, for sure, the airline industry is selling the plane saying, this is more fuel efficient now. It's uh, only uh, four liters per uh, 100 kilometers per person sitting in the plane under perfect conditions. And then you're saying, yeah, but the problem is <laughs> the number of kilometers. <laughs> so sure. if, if, if you do take your trip to, to Bali to enjoy nice weather in wintertime, you need to be aware of you will never be able to, to catch up the CO2 emissions Sure. by taking your kids uh, by bicycle to, to school every day for the rest yeah. of your life. So I think this is, is something which from outside, of course, it's easier to, to spot than from inside. And there's this extreme competition between um, airlines. The marginal cost of an extra seat is, is close to zero, which means that you always find tickets which are so ridiculously cheap that mm. uh, in no relationship to, to what you're actually consuming in terms of energy and in terms of service overall. And then, of course, we're also in 
in uh, a situation where these external costs, which this industry is putting on everyone else, is just getting too large. Yeah. So we have this fly shaming movement, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, so you know, you're, you're sitting there, and the only question these major players are asking for the first three months of the COVID crisis: How long is it going to last? How long is it going to last? Uh, without even considering that there might be some radical changes. And it's something which the students which we have, they, of course, reflect in a very personal way. Many of them, they trilled to get this education with us. Many would be also intercontinental travelers to make that happen. So so they're also reflecting, of course, on, on this and quite practically, you know, wondering what will be the ticket to, to go home to Christmas. That's something I can still still afford if that industry changes a lot. So there's there's a lot of highly emotionally loaded discussions which happen then in in such future off projects. And for us we are not there to to judge. We are not there to come up with a solution to predict the future or to form a future which we like, but we are there to bring options on the table. So also there we uh, worked basically in informing, showing what are the drivers which will make sure that this industry will never go back to an old normal. It will be transformed. Uh, And we are there to, to show in which ways this could happen. And then it's that's the joy of a futurist is that you, you can with that then be part of informing action, but you're not the one doing the action. So it's something which gets picked up then on different levels by legislation, but also by um, the actors in the field, how they look forward. But we do want to help to bring in this, not just fresh air, but also this room to maneuver that other narratives can survive in an organization where otherwise it would be everything so much focused on efficiency to meet this bottom line slightly um, above the red, you know, to make sure that this continues to, uh, to happen. And um, this is, is something which really brings back a lot of excitement then to, to everyone involved in these projects. I'm sure. You're doing some work with Ted Fuller on responsible corporate foresight. Maybe you just want to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I think it's uh, amazing work which Ted is is doing. So he um, has uh, created UNESCO chair for responsible foresight. And for us as, as foresighters who try to bring options on the table, we also know that some of these options, they, they would be picked up, they would be implementer they can be good and bad so there's always this notion that if you create new thoughts if you open horizons then the genie is out of the bottle and then this genie might do things you haven't intended the genie to do and for ted he's doing an amazing job to really create this this 360 degree view on foresight and responsibility how do they interact what does it mean to decolonize the future? What is our responsibility also on reconnecting these feedback loops which are unconnected? I think we had this discussion earlier about the inability for us, for instance, to reconnect the feedback loop of us consuming food, but us also, you know, 
taking care of our planet so that food can be grown. And as we know, crops are already changing in many places of the world, which still sounds positive. Uh, but then it also means that in some places of the world, the crops which used to grow there are no longer uh, possible to grow there. This kind of feedback loop is impossible to see when you are in the shelf on a supermarket. But Foresight has also a strong role to, to play to recreating those feedback loops and had also an amazing discussion going back to, to more nearshore for you to the Aborigine society in, in Australia, which is not only the society which has survived the longest as a society that we know of, but also in an incredibly scarce environment. The more you have scarcity, the more the feedback loop actually closes for us, that, that you realize if I'm hunting now one fish too many, then it will not reproduce. Now, if I'm going after this tree because I want uh, this wood, this tree is actually feeding the animals, which I'm then later on use for food. And I'm also not going to fall into this trap of this abundance, which I feel when I'm in a supermarket and I've got the money to, to buy whatever I want. This myth of abundance, which actually is not there on the planet, is something which we need to overcome. So this is possibly part of, of what futurists can do to shed light on the systemic nature of those challenges. Also on the implication, we basically, um, without acknowledging them in many times, have to, to care for. And for me, it's, it's still something which organizing my own thoughts around this notion, what will be responsible foresight in a corporate environment. This is something which I'll be working on with Patrick van der Duin, who is for many years, more than me, an active, informed voice about how foresight in firms gets used uh, to what ends. So I'm really excited about this project. There's really a couple of things which I would love to, uh, to explore. First of all, it's the notion of what are we doing and where are we doing it? So what is already done by firms? And there are some interesting things I already seen, for instance, a big chemical company, which said we're going to use a scenario exercise to involve some 200 leaders old and new to look at the purpose of our organization found that an amazing activity uh, i'd like to to do some research to find more of such activities which are already in a context where they need to exercise then re responsibility or where they want to enhance responsibility of firms the other question is well, what is actually the role firms need to play? There's still this, this tension, so to speak, that on the one hand can listen to Milton Friedman and say the business of business is business. So you need to focus on what you do. You need to focus on your top and bottom line. And the rest is given by the context, which comes from society and from politics to give you the rules under which you need to operate. The notion gets challenged for good reasons and saying we, we can't behave like that, that everything which is not allowed, I'm free to do. It's also firms need to, to think responsibly about what is the implications of my actions. So I think many see an emerging trend, which potentially gains in strength to 
move more towards a stakeholder-based economy. That is certainly something which we need to address there, but it's also a very big topic. And uh, ultimately, I'm also a pragmatist, so I also want to see which kind of formats actually make sense to engage into more, more, more sustainable type of foresight, more responsible type of foresight. I'm also very eager to um, explore and continue exploring methods which allow us to open up this process. Um, maybe like I do in, in a humble way with my future of projects, but to bring different groups together in order to be open about the, the strategies which are being built, about the implication of those strategies, etc. There's a lot of potential also through the tools which we all use now, online forums, social media, etc., which allows us to bring in a very lean way voices into the debate about future priorities, which is something which we'll need to get much better on in order to build really this robust, resilient futures for us and, and a more sustainable planet for all of us to live in. Yes, we certainly have to. It's been great to catch up. I think the work you're doing with responsible corporate foresight is right up your alley. I can hear your juices running and I think the work you're doing in the business school with the future of is the beginnings of that kind of participatory, non-colonised futures idea that we both hope can find a place in organisations. But thanks for all the work you're doing and thanks for finding some time out to talk to the FuturePod community. Well, it has been wonderful to be here, Peter. Thanks for bringing me back and thanks for your fantastic work of bringing all these voices together. I'm still a keen follower of your work and looking forward to some bright futures for all of us. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.